So, today we're going to mess with your uh, mind a little bit in the space-time continuum all at the same time. Last episode that we did was number seven. Um, today is going to be number 10. Then we're going to do Easter, which is number 11. And then we're going to go back up and catch on episodes eight and nine after that. We just ran out of time. We ran out of weeks. But I thought it was far better to do it this way than to just pretend that Easter was just two weeks later for us than the rest of the world. So to further confuse you, today is an end, and in many ways it is also just the beginning. So previously on the Upside Down, Jesus has been in Jerusalem. He celebrated Passover with his apostles. He came into a parade all along the roads outside the city and inside the city. The city was filled with Jews who were expecting not just Passover, but perhaps this person, Jesus, that they had heard speak. Many had seen him perform miracles. Perhaps this was the time when he would declare himself Messiah. And as hard as the temple leaders had tried to retake the crowd from Jesus, they had been unsuccessful. Even his enemies had accepted the fact that there was no way that they were going to ever win back the crowd. Jesus had the crowd. And at some point, John 12 tells us that even one of them in a meeting blurted this out. John 12, 19. See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And they kind of stare out into the streets of Jerusalem and all they can hear is the thunder of the crowd shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna! Basically shouting, you are the king, here comes the king, come save us. And they realized that they had lost the battle. And their only hope was to separate Jesus from the crowd and then ultimately to have him executed. Jesus comes into the city and he goes to a secure location for him and his guys to celebrate Passover. And they gather that night and so much went on in that conversation. He had hinted throughout that he was going to establish something new. Because Jesus did not come to be an and. Jesus came to be an instead of. And then he inaugurated the new covenant. His New relational arrangement between God and mankind. A covenant that would be the fulfillment of Abraham's covenant with God. It would be the replacement for God's covenant with the nation of Israel established at Mount Sinai through Moses. And just like contracts have terms and conditions, so covenants also have terms and conditions. And so on the very night that they celebrated the Passover, Jesus gave them the terms and conditions of the new covenant. And it wouldn't be 600 plus laws. There wouldn't even be 10 commandments. There would, wouldn't even be two. There would just be one. The new command. The new covenant command. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And this would be the overarching ethic that would establish the overarching morality for this brand new movement called the church. This was the mark of the covenant that Jesus came to establish with you and with all mankind. What a night. 
It started with Jesus saying, from now on, when you celebrate Passover, you are not going to celebrate Israel's migration out of Egypt. From now on, when you celebrate Passover, you are going to do this in remembrance of me. That the bread is my body, the wine is my blood. And they're listening, and they've got no category for any of this. It's all so confusing. And as the night wore on, they could tell that Jesus became more and more disturbed. Something was up. Jesus seemed troubled, and if Jesus could be worried, Jesus seemed worried. Hey, and where did Judas run off to? They had all expected him to be back by now. And after his supper, Jesus gets up and he says, let's leave. Let's go for an after-dinner walk. And so they do. They go on a walk to the garden. They make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is an urban garden in the middle of the city. They'd been there many times, and they went at night so that they wouldn't be recognized and so that no one would disturb them. They get into the garden, and Jesus says, okay, guys, I want you to stay here and pray. I'm going to go a little bit farther in to the garden alone. And he prays for a while. It's an agonizing prayer where he says to his heavenly Father, Father, you and I know what's about to happen. And if I had a choice, if I wasn't so committed to the end result, I would choose another option. I would go by another route. But as always, not my will, but your will be done. So he goes back and he checks on the boys and sure enough, there they are, sound asleep. And he wakes them up and he says to them, guys, couldn't you even pray with me for an hour? And then, and then Judas shows up, but he's not alone. He brings with him a small army, temple henchmen. They come to get Jesus and to the shock, to the dismay, to the horror of the whole contingent, Jesus just surrenders himself willingly to the temple leaders. Mark wrote it down this way, Mark 14, 50. Then everyone deserted him and fled. The story goes on, verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law, they came together. These guys have never been able to get this close to Jesus. They've never been able to kind of isolate him from the crowd and They'd never been able to look straight into his eyes. They'd never been in a place where they could reach out and touch him. And they were curious. And now, because there were more of them than there was of him and his followers, they were also emboldened. And what follows next is interesting, and you will notice that there is just so much detail. And if you ever find yourself, you're reading uh, part of the narrative of the New Testament, and you think to yourself, hey, Hey, where did they get all this information? Huh? Who told them that these things happened? Well, we find out in the book of Acts. You know, there's four accounts of Jesus' life. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four Gospels, and then Luke, he wrote another one, the history of the church, and it's called Acts. In the book of Acts, we discover that many, many Pharisees became Jesus' followers, not because of what Jesus taught. They became followers of Jesus after the resurrection. And no doubt it was some of these men who were in the meetings that gave the gospel writers this 
details. So here's what happened. Verse 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin. Now, you remember the Sanhedrin is the entire Jewish Supreme Court sort of and the equivalent of our houses of parliament. They were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they didn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. And then, when they would ask Jesus a direct question, he refused to answer. And finally, the high priest Caiaphas, most powerful man in the room, he begins to lose his temper, all right? Verse 60, then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What, what is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And finally, the high priest decides to uh, get to the heart of the matter, and he goes, with this one question, this is the one they want Jesus to answer out loud. Because if he answers it incorrectly, it's all the evidence that they need to crucify him. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And in this moment, Jesus held his future and your future in his hands. And he looked at the chief priests and he, and he kind of looks around the room at all of the men that are there whose motives were anything but pure. Verse 62, I am, said Jesus. And the high priest tore his clothes. That's a sign of lament and anguish. Why do we need more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. And then the temple guards, they step in. Verse 65, then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him and struck him with their fists and said, prophesy and the guards took him and beat him the men in the room who were in charge now had what they needed to condemn jesus to death and they conspired together through the night to figure out what the next steps were going to be and we don't know if they were up all night but we're pretty sure that jesus got no sleep that night mark 15 1 very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. Now, having determined Jesus' guilt, they still need Rome to carry out their sentence. So the plan is simple. The plan, the plan was to figure out a way to convince Pilate to execute Jesus that very day before Passover so that they could all just get back to business, so that everything and everyone in the city would just calm down and give up on any of these messianic aspirations. Things would be as they always had been. And they wanted all this done before sunset. So they come up with what they thought would be the best way to get Pilate to do their bidding. So the text continues, So they bound Jesus led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Now, Pilate, uh, he's the governor of Judea and Samaria, and it just so happens that Jerusalem is in Judea. He'd been the governor there for about seven years, and we know that from history that he, that Pilate could not stand 
the Jews, okay? He didn't even like going to the city of Jerusalem. He lived in a sweet palace on the coast, and he only went to Jerusalem during festivals in order to keep the peace. His favorite pastime was antagonizing the Jewish leaders. He, he, he just loved reminding them that they were subjects of Rome. He reveled in their groveling. John 18, 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So the guys from the Sanhedrin had already gone through a series of elaborate cleansings so that they could lead and they could participate in Passover. And they knew if they, you know, step across the threshold of Pilate's palace, if they entered the home of a Gentile, they would have to start that cleansing process all over again. So just watch the hypocrisy here. They wouldn't cross a threshold, but they're about to insist that an innocent man be put on a cross. Verse 29, so Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? And they had a prepared statement. <clears throat> um, if he were not a criminal, they replied, uh, we, we would not have handed him over to you. Let me translate that for you. Let's not get bogged down in all those details, all right? We just need a favor, Pilate. You and me, we've been through this before. You know that we wouldn't bring him here unless it was really important. You know that we really wouldn't bring him here on the eve of Passover if it was not really important. Pilate loved it when the Jewish leaders needed a favor, so he eggs them on. Verse 31, Pilate said, take him yourselves. Judge him by your own law. He wanted them to beg. He wanted them to have to acknowledge Rome's sovereignty over this Jewish rebel state, and so they sighed. And they looked at Pilate, and everybody knew the answer to this. Everybody understands the situation. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. <laughs> this is music to his ears. Oh, yeah, that's right. You don't have the power or the authority. Right, 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 right. And then Pilate did something else to irritate them. He went, he went back into his palace knowing that they wouldn't follow because they were too ceremonially clean for that. But he insisted they bring Jesus in. Verse 33, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? <laughs> Outside, religious leaders are losing their minds because they're so afraid that if Pilate is one-on-one -on -one with Jesus, then Jesus will use some of his Jesus magic, right? He swayed the crowd. He won the nation. There's no telling what he's going to say to Pilate. And so they are scared to death outside, wondering why their plan hadn't worked out. They didn't anticipate that since they didn't want to go inside, that perhaps Pilate would invite Jesus in. And Jesus... Well, he, he didn't seem to have any reservations about spending time with Gentiles. In fact, that was part of the problem with Jesus. It was who he would hang out with. And so Pilate cuts to the chase. Pilate's heard the rumors. You know, some rabbi from Galilee had come to Jerusalem. He'd heard about the parade. He'd seen the crowd and soldiers. He's getting reports from soldiers. They're saying, 
hey, we're on the edge of a riot because of the rabbi from Galilee that came into the city for Passover. And now Pilate has his opportunity to ask his questions. Are you the king? Verse 34, is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Why are you here? And why are you all here so early in the morning? Don't you realize the kind of stir that you've created? So Jesus jumps back to that original question. He says, yes, I am a king. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not from, it's not like, it's not designed around the kingdoms of this world. If it were, well then, we all know what would happen. This scenario plays out all the time, right? This is the same thing that happens when anyone, anytime, claims to be a Jewish king. It's the same thing that happens anytime someone claims to be a Messiah. We all know how this would play out. My servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. If I were to play by your rules, if I were to behave just like you, we would use force because that's the way things happen in the kingdoms of this world. Pilate, my kingdom is nothing like yours. Nothing like your kingdom. My kingdom is not like any kingdom on this planet. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. So they have a bit more of a conversation, goes back and forth a little bit, and Pilate turns back and he goes around and he goes outside. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea. That's where Pilate is, the governor. He stirs them up by his teaching. And then one of them, <laughs> one of them says something that I'm sure they had agreed ahead of time. Don't mention this. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. So Pilate thinks to himself, ah, Galilee, right, so he's a Galilean. Well, looky here, boys, that's not even my jurisdiction. You've come to the wrong person, and now you're wasting my time and your time. You need to go take him to Herod. Herod, he's the governor of Galilee. So I'm sure these guys turn to what, somebody's brother-in-law, and they say, buddy, we decided to not bring that part up. This is all taking too much time. We're on the clock here. So Herod is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one who built the temple in Jerusalem. Herod the Great was the one who sent his henchmen into Bethlehem about 30 years earlier to murder all the boys two and under. He had them all killed because he was afraid that someone would interfere with his rule, and then, like everyone else, he eventually died anyway. His sons are now in control of different parts of the area, and Herod the Great's son, Herod, was now the governor of Galilee, and he just happened to be on the other side of town, of course, because it's Passover. So Pilate says, look, Herod's in town. This is none of my business, okay? Take him to Herod. Sheesh. This is not going the way the temple leaders had planned. And Pilate hands 
Jesus back to them. And the temple guards lead them all, the whole procession, over to Herod's palace. And you can read all this yourself. Herod is thrilled to see Jesus. He's just like Pilate and like so many others. He's never been able to get up close, never had the face-to-face. He's never been able to have a conversation or to ask any of his questions. But he's heard the rumors, so he brings Jesus in and he asks Jesus questions, and Jesus won't answer his questions. And then he says, okay, Jesus, I've heard about you. Do some tricks. I know what you can do. I've heard all those stories. So yeah, go ahead, do it. I'm watching. I'm waiting. And of course, Jesus refuses to play along. Herod is now fed up. This this is not what he wants to see. Jesus is not giving him anything that he wants to hear. So Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. So after they have regathered with Pilate, Luke 23, verse 14. You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. But guys, I don't see any rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. You know what? Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, just to appease you, just to get you off my front porch, just so that we can get along with Passover, I will punish him and then release him. But the crowd goes wild. Verse 18, the whole crowd shouted, away with this man. John 19, 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. For first century readers, there's no need to explain that word, flogged. They understood that word. It's two Roman soldiers, each with a cat of nine tails, tipped with shards of bone and metal fragments tied into the leather. And they would stand behind the man. The man's hands would be bound and tied up way over his head to stretch him out. And they would take turns. And they would count. Because even the Romans had rules about flogging. The pieces of metal, the pieces of bone would not only rip layer after layer of skin off the man's back, it would also rip layer after layer of skin off a man's gut and chest. As those pieces of leather would wrap around and rip away skin, lash after lash, up to 40 lashes. People died from flogging. They died from infection. They died from blood loss. Now, here's the thing. We have to stop for just a minute and talk about this as uh, 21st century people because it's virtually impossible for us, and me too, it's virtually impossible for us to not sanitize and then kind of romanticize what happens in the next few hours in the life of Jesus. The reason that it's so hard is that many of us heard this story as children. And when you tell children a story like this, you have to remove the blood and the guts. But for many of us, For most of us, perhaps maybe for you, the last time that you heard this story was when you were a child. And maybe the last time you have heard anyone read these passages was when you were a teenager. And so you kind of have in your head the PG version of a beyond R rated story. But as an adult, it is so important that we not sanitize it. So we're not going to play soft music behind it in the back. 
To maintain our childlike view of this story is to miss this story. Because the truth is, we would all look away. Verse 2, soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe on his beaten, bloody, raw back. And went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Face that's already been bruised from the night before with the guards. And once more Pilate came out and he said to the Jews gathered there, Look! You know, in, in hopes of, of, of them seeing Jesus in this beaten state that they might have just a little bit of pity. Perhaps they would say, okay, okay enough is enough. Okay, he's ruined. He's probably going to die anyway. Surely this was enough to get them to leave him alone. To avoid doing something that Pilate didn't want to do. And to get past Passover so that he could just go back to his seaside palace away from all of them. I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered them, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Even when he was being beaten, close to death, he did not break. Even during flogging, he didn't shout out and start confessing to things that he knew weren't true, just in order to stop the punishment. Now, I believe that this man is innocent, absolutely innocent. And Pilate can't believe this. He's never seen anything like it. He says, I'm done with this. Then the Jewish leaders, they start phase two of the plan since part one was taking far too long. We never told you this. It's a capital offense. And so verse seven, the Jewish leaders insisted we have a law and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He was even more afraid because son of God intersected with Roman myth and Roman legend. Suddenly this had crossed from being just, you know, kind of a Jewish thing into being a Roman thing. Because for someone to claim to be the Son of God was threatening to the empire. This was a big deal. This was a code word. And now he knew that he needed to do something else. The guards took Jesus back inside to question him even further. This time, Jesus won't answer. Now, if you're not a Christian, or you've left faith, or you're not sure what to do with faith, or someone's making you watch this right now, please don't miss this next line, all right? Because for, for whatever reason you left church or, or quit believing, I get that. I bet if I had gone through what you have gone through, then I would do the same things that you have done. There's no guilt. There's no judgment. A first century Roman soldier who had seen everything. This is his experience. Verse 5. But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Because this is when men groveled and begged. Not for their lives. This is when men fell to their knees and begged for a quick death. And Jesus won't answer. 
Pilate is exasperated. John 19.10, do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? To which Jesus could have said, then why are you the one who's so afraid? Verse 11, Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. So Pilate's seen a lot. He'd seen men die in battle. He'd seen men die immediately in battle. He'd seen men die slowly in battle. He'd seen men bleed to death on the surgeon's table. He'd seen it all. But he'd never seen anything or anyone like this. Because when he stared into Jesus' eyes, they were not crazy eyes. Those were the eyes of someone fully aware. These were the eyes that were sincere. And maybe most importantly to a man like Pilate, these were eyes that were fearless. So much so that the text tells us, verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders, they kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend to Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Checkmate, Pilate. Pilate was outmaneuvered. His hands were bound. They'd called him out publicly. And Pilate knew that Emperor Tiberius had eyes and spies everywhere. The text says that when Pilate heard this, when they finally got to this part of their plan, when they finally got to this level of argument, verse 13, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. And then before they can stop themselves, someone, someone shouts out something that at any other moment, at any other time would have been considered blasphemy and punishable by death. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to, the, to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Mark 15, 22. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, which is just a very small gesture of mercy, but he didn't take it. And as you... Read this part of the story in all four Gospels. It's like time slows down. There's so much detail, and now the story goes more moment by moment, more hour by hour, conversation by conversation, line by line. For each of the Gospels, this is the stuff that they wrote the Gospel for. But for this next part, the next part of the story, that all stops. What comes next needed no extra detail, no deeper explanation. Bang. 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 Verse 24. And they crucified him. Invented by the Greeks, perfected by the Romans. It could take a man days to die from crucifixion, depending on how healthy the person was, and how well the Romans did their jobs. Because the goal was not a quick death. 
The goal was a prolonged death. Crucifixion was so gruesome that church leaders later on banned it from any depiction in art. It was banned in all art until the 4th century when Constantine became emperor and then banned it as a method of execution. C.S. Lewis wrote this, The crucifixion did not become a frequent motif in Christian art until the generations which had seen real crucifixions were all dead. There was nothing glamorous. You could not sanitize this. It was horrible. And crucifixion was a death inflicted on many, but catch this, it was chosen by only one. Our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But here's something you should know. Here's something that maybe, maybe you've never heard before. Here's something that makes the rest of the story extraordinary. When Jesus died, there were no Christians. When Jesus died, there were no believers. When Jesus died, there were no more followers. Sympathizers, yes, but no believers. And here's why. Because throughout his ministry, Jesus claimed too much about himself. The central part of Jesus' ministry was not his stories, not his teachings, not even his miracles. It was what he claimed about himself. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life. But you cannot crucify the resurrection and the life. He claimed to be the Son of Man, the Son of God, but the Son of God isn't going to be arrested by Romans. He gave every indication that he was God's Messiah that they'd waited on for hundreds of years. But God's Messiah isn't going to be put to death by a foreign power. If Jesus was crucified, if Jesus was dead, then clearly he wasn't whom he claimed to be, and he was not who they believed he was. There was no dream to keep alive. There was no movement to keep moving. It was over. Joseph of Arimathea, member of the Sanhedrin, part of that you know, Jewish Supreme Court. He's a friend of Nicodemus, also part of the Sanhedrin. We met him earlier in our journey together. They hugged their kids, kissed their wives, and then risked their lives when they went to go ask Pilate for Jesus' body. Because in the first century, a crucified person cannot be buried. They were put on a trash heap to be left for the dogs and wild animals. So they went to Pilate. I'm sure they had to provide a couple of pieces of silver to ensure permission to actually take Jesus' body. In the end, he was not who they hoped he was, but he certainly deserved better than this. Sabbath was going to arrive soon. They had to hurry. And so the religious leaders asked if the two other criminals being crucified with Jesus could have their legs broken so that they could no longer push up and breathe and so that they would suffocate more quickly. And when they came to Jesus because of all the prior beatings, because of, he had been scourged, he had already bled to death. And so they took his body. And John 19 tells us, 39, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. See, it, it's strips of linen, not just one big piece. They embalmed the body. Why did they embalm the body? Because they expected 
the body to stay dead. They embalmed the body in such a way that if he was alive, he would surely have suffocated. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And as the sun set and as Passover began, they made their way home, confused, dismayed, no answers, so many questions. And the next day, Pilate is disturbed once again, Matthew 27, 62. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver said that after three days, I will rise again. So sir, again, sorry, one last favor. It's going to serve both of us very well. Verse 64, so give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and then tell the people that he has been raised from the dead and this last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. And that night, everyone slept well. Caiaphas, the high priest, well, Caiaphas slept well, knowing that once again he had outmaneuvered Rome. Once again he had leveraged his power to control. He had made Rome do his bidding. Pilate slept well, knowing that Passover was now behind him. The city was going to empty, all these guests, all these foreigners were going to go. And he would now be able to go back home to the coast where he enjoyed life. Up north somewhere, Saul of Tarsus was preparing another mind-bending message to follow Passover in his region. And Rome? Emperor Tiberius had no idea of any of these events. All was as it always had been. All was as it always would be. Because everybody expected Jesus to do what dead people usually do. Stay dead. Little did they know that in the next few hours, they would secure their place in history. Their names would be spoken for generations in languages that they didn't know, in places that they didn't even know exist. For generations, men and women would speak their names around the world but not as they would have wished. They would each become a footnote in the story of the rabbi from Galilee. For what they intended as the end was actually just the beginning. The beginning of something brand new. The beginning of something brand new for the world and for you. The story's not done. Tune in next time for the episode that we have been leading to all along. Kind Father, thank you for what the story turns into. Thank you for how it goes. Thank you for the, the time that you took. Thank you for the sacrifice that you gave, Lord Jesus. Thank you for all that you have done on our behalf to save us. So as we can say Hosanna. Come save us. Come be our Savior. Come be our King. Come take control. Lord Jesus, it is our desire once again to trust in you, to follow you. 
to cast our cares, our very lives upon you. Whether it's a regular day or it's a pandemic day. Lord Jesus, we trust you. Holy Spirit, I pray that wherever these words are being heard, that you would bring about peace. Peace that comes from the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That you would draw hearts, you would draw people towards yourself. That you would push the thoughts that say, how will I now live? Who is Jesus to me? Now that I've heard, what will I do with what I have heard? Lord God, I pray your blessing on any who have made it this far in listening. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.